Hi everyone, I'm Hayley Haggerty and you're listening to In Case of an Event. This podcast is where event leaders and experts share success stories, inner secrets and lessons learned on how to create, cultivate and future-proof large-scale events. Today's episode is a recap of all the learnings from In Case of an Events class of Season 1. I take you through the top 10 must-knows for making sure you're ready for the quick and changing landscape of the next generation of events. Okay, let's start with the big one. WTF is hybrid. It's very much the unknown, we're only starting to really transition from true virtual to hybrid events, but here are some ideas and opinions on what some of the in case of an event speakers think hybrid could look like when trying to blend them when the virtual experience and in-person event is happening at the same time. Mohamed Jonas from VFairs gives his opinion. How do you let uh, attendees who are going to be in a physical location be connected with the virtual audience, right? Because we know that the future of the event is going to be a lot more virtual, a lot more hybrid. And in order to, again, get maximum conversions, you want to make sure that other than physical attendees meeting with physical attendees or exhibitors, how they can also interact with the virtual audience. So there's a lot of features being built around that. It all starts, first of all, from the ability for, first of all, people to know okay, who's going to be a physical attendee versus a virtual attendee. So there's a badge system so that people know, okay, how do I have to interact with them? Then there is an ability for like, for you to look into where the person is, what exactly their agenda looks like for the rest of the day, and let their calendar be open for the audience that they want to interact with, right? So again, you don't open the calendar to thousands of people out there. You match them with the right audience and let their calendar be open to them. Some of the executions that we are working on they have literally cubicles for people to upfront book for those physical to virtual meetings, right? So it's not that you're just walking on the hallway, someone called you, et cetera. Again, you know, the idea of the moment you involve technology, you want things to be less ad hoc and more structured. Sean from speednetworking.com has similar ideas around overcoming the constructs between the virtual and in-person worlds. We were actually just having a conversation the other day about some hybrid capabilities within the platform where we can have you know, participants, whether they're in person at the conference, networking with someone who might be attending virtually or set up two different tracks. So those that are there in person can network with one another. Those that are virtual can network uh, in a virtual environment. So I think the, the possibilities of utilizing our platform in a hybrid sense are, are pretty unlimited at the point. And I just think it's a matter of you know, trial and error, some experimenting a little. Carrie from CNTV expands on the idea of a delayed hybrid and what advantages hybrid has for regional shows. I think some things that we're seeing are the delayed hybrid. So maybe you have your face-to-face and to really get the benefit, you've got to come, you've got to get on an airplane, you've got to drive, you've got to be there in person. But if for some reason you can't, then maybe a week later, a couple of weeks later, there's still an opportunity for you. And that is another revenue opportunity. So I think that concept of a delayed hybrid is really interesting. And I think that's going to get some traction. I also think for hybrid events, we're seeing them be successful for smaller or regional events. 
you know, maybe there was a regional event, let's say I live in Orlando, maybe in the Southeast, and it was small and maybe it was only a drive-in audience. Well, all of a sudden, if it's live streamed, suddenly that audience can be nationwide where it may not be worth someone spending the money and the time to get on an airplane, but they would still pay to participate. Julius from SwapCard touches on a risk of hybrid. You know, the risk of hybrid and sync, syncing these two experiences is that you start having first class and second class attendees, right, with the in-person, especially with everybody pushing to the in-person being the premium experience, right? But don't worry, Jack Needle is to the rescue. Craig reminds us how important swag is to a virtual attendee. So there's a lot of ways of making that connection so that once that virtual event disappears into the ether, there's still a tangible product in their kitchen, in their home, or with them that reminds them of that event. So the moral of the hybrid story is uncertain. There is going to be lots of trial and lots of error before we get to the happy ending. And we will all endure hard work combining in-person and hybrid without cannibalisation. But now moving on to takeaway number two. Between events, whether in-person or virtually, there is now a belief and a massive opportunity to engage your industry all year round. Bob from Microsoft touches on his digital core theory. Well, I mean, we have a we have a we have a theory, and we're working, and and here's what we're working on, and and this mm-hmm. is the way we kind of see the world right now. First, what we've discovered about what we're doing in the digital world is so powerful and so effective. We don't want to give that up, right? right. I mean, it, you know, at the highest level, they're so much more inclusive, of course, right? A show like Build as an example, we did six thousand people last year in person. We did one hundred ninety-seven thousand people in person. You know, this it's, it's mind-boggling. So yeah. that piece of it. You don't want to lose that. So that's going to stay. It's also making that more effective, more inclusive thing is less expensive than a live event. And then I think the other piece is, and I think for a lot of companies, this is going to become increasingly important, the ability to contribute to the reduction of carbon footprint for any company by doing less of these things live and more of them virtual is profound. It means that digital core is going to be important and at the center of everything we do moving forward, and that's not going to change. Julius from SwapCard discusses how the virtual events have allowed us to better develop community-led event strategies. But I think the nature of of events such as in-person engagements are, and, and also this peak of like one big annual events for most initiatives didn't really lend itself to the concept of year-long engagement. Nancy from Sear parallels the e-commerce experience with pivoting away from a virtual trade show floor, but to an interactive product directory that lives beyond the event. When I go shopping online, Amazon, I'm looking for the products and services and what bubbles up. And then you want to be the top-ranked listing, right? There's a lot of revenue to be made here with that interactive product category, and it should live beyond the time of the virtual event, right? I mean, this is where these marketplaces should endure beyond the whatever number of days that live content is being presented. This can become that mechanism for engagement that extends beyond any event, whether it's in-person or virtual But with this new event world, virtual, hybrids or community-based, we need to remember to educate our sponsors and exhibitors on how to maximise our online experience and how it's very different to in-person lead capture and follow-up. 
This takes us to takeaway number three. Bob from Microsoft, who managed CES Digital, talks about this very issue with his experience running CES 2021. I do not feel that when we sold the sponsorships to exhibitors, we did enough to really move them along the way of understanding the difference and get, and getting buy-in, right? I, I think, and it's hard because if a sales force has been used to selling cement for 20 years, and then you go, okay, now here's the whole new set of tools and here's the whole new script about it. And half of them are really skeptical anyway. You know what yeah. I mean? Kind of going like, and and kind of going to all of their clients going like, it's only going to be one year. We're going to don't, you know, instead of kind of going, hey, let's really see what we can do. So I wish we had, I wish we'd had more time. I wish we had done a better job. I wish we'd done more at really getting that buy-in because the disparity between the exhibitors who used the directory and their, their media page and the, and the interstitial programming and really made it work. I mean, they had, they had great shows. Okay. So let's make sure we are prioritizing sponsor and exhibitor education on how to utilize online and virtual community event platforms. And on the subject of sponsors, we're going to move on to key takeaway number four. Content is everything. Julius from Swapcard explains the benefit of being a thought leader sponsor. The most effective sponsorship activation that we've seen from all this analysis of 500 plus events, 550,000 total exhibitors, 1.6 million attendees was content, sponsored content. Jeff from FT Live reminds us of making sure our content is need to know, how to best work with sponsors when actually curating the content with them and redefining a pricing model for virtual education. The programs that we write have to be um, not just topical and we're not there just because the journalist thinks it's a good idea. We actually have to make sure that the programs, as you say, fill, fill a gap in the market uh, that bring, bring something to, to the delegate that they can't find elsewhere or that it really, really has to be essential viewing. You know, when our sponsors sponsor a core event, we have a very detailed conversation with them on the type of speaker they're going to put forward. Sometimes, you know, I get sort of hate mail from sponsors saying, why aren't you letting me put this speaker forward? And I continue to insist because it's very important to, um, to maintain the sort of integrity of the event. After quite a lot of research, we've now put together a new, a new strategy where I think the pricing is going to be quite well tailored as it were to to the types of um to, to what we see as the audience now slightly different audience an audience that, that will pay for quality but there's a certain level that you can't go too high but we need to begin to sort of move towards a model where people are paying you know we, we put together premium content and and it's worth something and of course nancy from seer reminded us how to best test past price ranges with your attendees well let me offer this this is a little secret this is a research a method to try to get or at least a range for pricing it's called the van westendorp uh, pricing model approach so you ask two questions you ask at what price uh, would you feel that the entrance fee would be too expensive? It would be good to give a little bit more detail so they know for what they're giving an expect is what what are you ex- expecting to pay for that? And at what point would you say 
if the fee was below a certain price point, would you feel it's not worth going to this event? And yes, high production quality is essential now more than ever. But Carrie from CNTV reminds us all that if the content isn't spot on, no flashy production is going to cut it. But I also think that when we go back to the basics, like, you know, that old adage that content is king. I still really believe that, you know, give me something that is going to be valuable for me because as an attendee, I'm being asked to give up my time and that's the most valuable thing I have. So what am I going to get in exchange for that? And maybe I don't need super, super uber fancy. I need something that's going to change what I do day to day. Now on to takeaway number five. Don't rely on serendipity. Utilise AI-driven matchmaking technology. Sean from speednetworking.com explains why it's important to provide a networking event for people who actually want to network. You know, you might go into an open ballroom at a conference where, you know, they're there just because that's on the next agenda item. Uh, and they don't necessarily want to connect with some people. You know, to put it bluntly, some people don't like networking. But when you're signing up and you're doing the pre-work for speed networking, you know, you've had that buy-in. You know, you're there because you appreciate networking, you know, the value that comes from networking. And you're knowing that you're going to be connecting with people of mutual interest. You know, a lot of the platforms out there right now might just be more of like the advanced filtering where I might try and find salespeople from the Midwest, but maybe they don't want to network with me. Uh, the good thing about our program is that it's all based off of mutual interests. So when you get your schedule, you can get excited about you know, seeing Mike's background or Haley's background and knowing exactly what they want to connect with. And they want to connect with you too. And that's the key to the program is that it's all based off of mutual interest. Mike from speednetworking.com talks about the importance of pre-planning when it comes to matchmaking and how to best utilize post-event data to improve the next edition. It's all, from my perspective, in the pre-planning. As long as you know your audience and you know your objectives, what you want to do, focus on that, build the event around that. The wonderful thing about the platforms is we can try lots of different types of events, being a peer-to-peer, knowledge sharing, a mentoring, a first-time attendee, a buyer-seller. We know that's a big one. Understand what you want. Is this an event where you want to generate revenue and monetization? And how does that look? We do a lot with monetization of sponsorships and how we can help our clients with that significantly. So again, when we talk to clients, sometimes we over we, we catch them off guard when we ask these questions. They understand that, wow, I never really thought about that. It's like a financial portfolio. You're going to diversify and figure out your different class of assets to invest in and what type of return do you want? And we do the same thing because we want, we know people, as you mentioned, they're so busy, they have crazy, you know, the expectations are getting crazier and crazier. Time is getting more constrained. People have less time. People are getting crazier, busier. So let's give them what they need. And then let's obtain that data and learn from that data when we do that. We're essentially what we're doing is predictive matchmaking. And then when the event concludes, we're able to look at that data, analyze that data and say, okay, we think to improve the next time we do this, let's change X, Y, and Z, whether it's in the marketing or it's in the matching or something else and put it together and continue to build upon that. So therefore, at the end of the day, that participant says, 
wow, I met four incredible people and it's because of your organization. Mohammed from VFairs reminds us that it's not enough to just put thousands of people in one place and hope that the right people meet each other. Just the ability for the AI to be there to match the right attendee with another attendee or with, uh, with an exhibitor, right? Because in the bigger scheme of things, hundreds and thousands of people are coming to attend the event. They want to network. You just don't want to let them randomly match with another person. You want to make sure that if I match someone to the next person, that is where the maximum amount of conversions would need to happen, right? So you want those conversations to be most meaningful that you can. If your current or future event plans don't include matchmaking, well, maybe you should consider it. Whether you use Swapcard, VFairs, SpeedNetworking.com or another platform, serendipity is nice, but planned serendipity is even better. That takes us to key takeaway number six, roundtables. Roundtable discussions. Ask the experts, you know, one-on-one, 15 minutes with an engineering legend that you always wanted to meet and ask a question of. like As we do with our roundtables in small settings, small private settings. These small groups, why everybody's going small groups? Because they're spark for conversation. So you've got structured matchmaking. And then you've got small groups of people who have came together to discuss an important topic as a group, perhaps. Yes, of course, this can work on site at an in-person event. But these types of roundtables, ask the expert sessions virtually, are another way to engage your audience with the right people in a virtual community setting, pre and post in-person event. Okay, so now we're going to go on a tangent with key takeaway number seven. With all that's going on in virtual, make sure to keep an eye on this experiential technology, virtual reality. Joanna Popper from HP discusses how we should and could be using this cool technology at events. Well, there's a, there's a lot happening, I would say, right now in the event space and virtual reality. But I think what, what makes VR compelling as a medium for some events. You know, there's there's a couple of things. So one is like the ability to connect with others, you know, the ability to collaborate with others, and even the ability to create with others, and and the ability to go and experience something that you might not might not be able to experience. So say you want to take people on a journey or show them something and have them in, either interact with that or be a part of it or collaborate with others in a, in a more meaningful way. So for example, you know, you can take them into a certain environment. You could even take them to an environment that they, that might not exist, right? So at a, you know, in a conference, you could have them come together and watch a concert or come together and create something using 3D assets and build something together. You can have them be together and dance, right? Altspace had Burning Man early last year. So you had the sensation of being with other people. So I think what what makes VR stand out as a a tool is the interactivity, the engagement, that sense of being someplace, you know, people call presence, um, and the, the embodied aspect. And create entire experiences and really in within your brand, you know, with your products, with your that that might not even be 
you know, something that you could create in the real world because it's virtual, right? Like you can, if, you know, if your brand is about soaring to new heights, you can have people flying in virtual reality, right? If your brand is about, I don't know, floating on the clouds, I'm just making things up, you know, you can have things that can't happen, right? So, so you can do things that are, you know, mimic reality, but then you can take it to new heights and new levels, right? You can have people like they're in space. Again, you know, you want, you have to keep it on brand for whatever your brand is, or you can, you know, you can also create the the ability for people to go inside the brand's world. So like, what is the factory like? What is, you know, where does the product come from? Where, you know, you take them into the origin story of how does the tequila get made? You know, I'm just making up things of whatever the brand is, but um, you know, for, for a car, you can show them the car and all sorts of colors without having to have all that inventory in the showroom. Um, you can have them feel like they're driving along the, you know, the Capri coast in, in Italy. How cool would it be for exhibitors to utilize this technology to give your live and virtual attendees access to their products, factory floor, or just experience something cool that relates to their brand using virtual technology? Moving on to key takeaway number eight. Is it time to consider the way you've structured your current team? We used to be a basketball team. Now we're a baseball team. Like we had to completely change. We gave people new jobs. I mean, I'd say 85% of the people in the, in the group and there's 120 are doing jobs they've never done before. And, you know, and most of these people have been working in the events industry 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Carrie and Bob are talking about this and a few other speakers did too. So when we return to live events and also manage virtual events and also have community digital cores, Should we have different teams focusing on different parts of the cycle? It's certainly food for thought, right? It's also important that we continue to work together and develop and learn from each other, taking us to takeaway number nine. Learning from what others are doing and collaborating is key. David from SISO expands on this. How many industries would you know where the vast majority of the top leaders in that industry get together every year and share quite openly amongst themselves how they're doing and what they're doing. I don't know many that are like that, but SISO and the exhibition industry, the for-profit side of our business, does that and has done that for decades. Keeping check with what's working within virtual, hybrids and digital communities within your industry and event peers, as well as competitors, will help you make more informed and better decisions on how you want to take your event forward in this new world. Okay, so I've saved maybe the most important for last. Takeaway number 10. Make sure diversity, inclusion and belonging is ingrained in your company and the industries you serve as event leaders. Michael from Clarion Events discusses the shift from people asking questions to people wanting tools for change. I'm I'm hearing and I'm involved in more conversations that have shifted from what is diversity and inclusion, what's the right thing to say and not say, to people now wanting tools to actually have a conversation with the leadership. You know, I'm, I'm hearing conversations from not just within my organization, but other organizations within the events industry that are saying, I'm dissatisfied. And, you know, there's a cohort of us that are dissatisfied with what our organization 
has or hasn't done. And we want to be equipped to approach from the bottom up, you know, to, to have a meaningful conversation to drive change. And what integrating, rather than having the DNI subject as something that is aside from your business strategy, but is actually absolutely ingrained in whatever your business strategy is because you believe it's just as important as whatever it might be, customer centricity, digital transformation, whatever it might be, is DNI just as important as all of those things for better results in your organization? Diona from BuzzFeed shares diversity recruitment best practices. There is a business case for diversity. That studies show that companies that are more diverse actually do better. They're more innovative, they make more money, and it's because they're they're seeing different perspectives, right? And so, but the tactics of how you make a company more diverse, I think of it kind of like like a stew. You throw all of these pieces in and um, they they tend to work when you have all of these pieces. And so making sure that you have relationships with organizations that represent groups that you may not already have at the company. So you're underrepresented groups and you have to define what underrepresented means for you. And we've started really looking at our our job descriptions using um, software to see, you know, what words need to change. Sometimes there are really gendered words that we use in normal conversation on job descriptions. Like we're looking for an aggressive rock star. I'm not sure how many women might describe themselves as an aggressive rock star, right? And so that might discourage those people from applying. I think that another thing is making sure that um, you look at the data again around who's applying for your job. So really good applicant tracking systems can tell you who's applying and where they're coming from. And if you look at the data and say, we aren't even getting a lot of diversity in our applicants, then then you ask yourself, well, is this an industry or a functional area that is, you know, underrepresented anyways? And so how can we build talent in that space? Or are we just not reaching people in the ways that we're posting? Pushing your leadership to do the right thing is part of your role. Making your team more diverse is part of your role. And creating event strategies that prioritize and create more diverse events is part of your day-to-day role and more important than ever before. It's time to drive change through the great events we create. That's a wrap for season one of In Case of an Event. Thank you to the class of season one speakers and thank you to our listeners. And please remember to rate, review and subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Stay tuned for season two coming soon for more episodes that will help you navigate the transition from virtual to in-person and everything in between and so much more in case of an event.